0: I invite you to turn again this morning to Ephesians chapter 1, and to this very long but very glorious sentence that we began looking at last week. While you're turning there, I'll just note that if any of you are grammar Nazis or grammar lovers and want a challenge, a member of our church wrote to me this week to tell me about an old class assignment that she had in grammar ...in which she was challenged to find the longest sentence she could find in English and diagram it. And guess what she chose? Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. She won the prize for the longest sentence in her class as the pages kept going down... ...and so maybe some of you would want to join her in that challenge this week. But I remind you, last week as we began looking at this sentence, we saw two things. First, we saw Paul's main point in this sentence... The main point is a declaration of praise for all the blessings in the heavenly places that God has given us in Christ. Well, God has not made any promises about this world and its material blessings while we continue to live in a broken world wracked by sin. He has offered us in Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and everything we say today will rest on this main point. Then we saw that Paul's sentence is structured around the Trinity, telling us what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, what role they play in our salvation. Last week, we looked particularly at the role of God the Father, and saw that the Father is the master planner of redemption. In His sovereign authority, and out of His lavish grace and His love for us, He has chosen to give to us the blessings of salvation He has chosen to do that from before the foundation of the world, and he did so in order to accomplish his plan of uniting all things in heaven and on earth in Christ, and he desires to accomplish this plan for the praise of his glory. That's what we saw last week. This morning, we want to turn our attention to Jesus, to the Son of God, and to see his role in our salvation. So if you would join me, let's read again Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Our God, Father, Son, and Spirit, how we thank you for your word, which you continue to use in our hearts and our lives today. Would you use these words to glorify Jesus and remind us what a great Savior he is? Would you draw us close to you, convict our hearts of our sinfulness, and draw us to faith for Jesus' sake? Amen. It's a common saying that success often has less to do with what we accomplish or what we do and more to do with who you know. Maybe some of you have had the experience of getting a job that you probably wouldn't have gotten, maybe wouldn't have even known about if you didn't know someone on the inside. Maybe some of you teens have a friend who works at Adidas and can give you the employee discount on your shoes or who works at Hershey Park and has free passes they can share to you. When I married Kate 15 years ago, thanks to her parents and her extended family, I had access now to a cabin in northeast Pennsylvania and a beach house on the Jersey Shore. Sometimes it's all who you know. (laughs) But that's something of the picture that Paul gives us here in Ephesians chapter 1. He lists blessing after spiritual blessing that God gives us. And if we ask how in the world could we inherit such rich blessings— we could never earn them on our own. There's nothing we could do that would deserve them. And the answer comes down completely to who we know. And the person that we need to know is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. To use our analogy from last week, if the Father is the master planner of redemption, if he's the architect who designs the, ho- the plan for the house, and if he's the general contractor who oversees and guarantees its execution— then the Son is the one who actually accomplishes redemption. The Son is the one who carries out the Father's plan, who does what the Father calls Him to do, securing these blessings. And the Son is the one we must go to to receive them. And that's the point for us to see today, that all glory belongs to Jesus, because every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places can only be ours in and through him. And as we walk through this passage, I want us to see our union with Christ that is the source of every blessing. I want us to see the blessings that we receive in union with Christ, and then the security of those blessings in Christ. So that's what we want to do today. Let's start by talking about our union with Christ. If we start with what Paul tells us in the text, what we find is that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places But he has not just handed those blessings over to us. God doesn't just come and say, here, have some blessings. He has given those blessings to us in Christ or through Christ. He tells us in verse 3 that these blessings come in Christ. But then as he lists all the blessings through the passage, he tells us in every single case that we get that blessing only in Christ. You see it in verse 4. God the Father chose us in Christ. Verse 5. He predestined us as sons through Jesus Christ. He says in verse 6 that he has blessed us in the beloved. In verse 7, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 11, in him we have an inheritance. So Paul makes it clear in verse after verse in this sentence that this relationship of being in Christ is the only means of receiving every blessing. But that probably begs a question. What does it mean to be in Christ? We don't go around talking about being in other people to describe our relationship. So what does that mean? Well, to be in Christ is to be united to Christ or joined to Christ. In relationship with him as our head and representative. So that whatever is true of him becomes true of us. The Bible uses several analogies for our union with Jesus. It uses the analogy of a vine. It says that we are united to Christ like branches are united to a vine. And you know how branches are united to a vine? The branches are in the vine. So if the vine lives, the branches live. If the vine dies, the branches die. If the vine gets chopped down, the branches are chopped down with it. What's happened to the vine happens to the branches. And so it is with us in Christ. When we are united to him, what happens to him, what is counted as true for him, It's accounted to us. It happens to us since we are in him. Another analogy that the Bible uses later in Ephesians to describe this union with Christ is a marriage. We find out that our marriages are a picture of our union with Jesus. To use one author's analogy or example of this, if you imagine a prince who is the son of a king who decides to marry a girl who is poor, whose name is recognized with shame for a large debt that she has incurred. What happens when that prince marries that girl? Well, they are united to one another. And the prince takes all of the debt of the girl that he has married on himself. He takes her shame on himself and he gives her all of his riches. She gets all of his riches, all of his honor, the honor of his name. And because of her marriage to him, The formerly ashamed and and poor commoner can now come to the king himself anytime and call him dad. That's being united to Jesus so that all that is his and everything that is true of him becomes ours and is kind of true of us because we are united to him and joined in relationship to him. Maybe we say, okay, well, that's a beautiful picture, but how does that work? How do we get to be united to Christ? And the Bible tells us, the Bible says that when we put our faith in Jesus, trusting Him as our Savior, Jesus sends His own Holy Spirit to come and dwell in us, which means that the very Spirit that is united to Jesus now is dwelling in us. And as the same Spirit dwells in Him and us, we are joined to Him, we are united to Him by His Spirit. In fact, the Bible uses such intimate language to describe this union when the same Spirit dwells in Him and us. It says things like, we have clothed ourselves in Christ, or we have put on Christ. It says that we have been engrafted into Christ. And all of this language is seeking to communicate the closeness and the the intimacy of our union with Jesus when we are united to Him by His Holy Spirit through faith, such that He is our representative and what is true of Him is is accounted as true of us. He is God's son, so we are counted as God's sons and daughters. He is accepted by God and declared righteous at the moment of his resurrection. Therefore, we are accepted by God and declared righteous in him. God has given him an eternal kingdom for an inheritance, and in him we too will receive an eternal inheritance with him. That's union with Christ. And this should be such an encouragement to us, Because by declaring that God doesn't just lob out some blessings but rather gives every spiritual blessing in Christ, God reminds us that the decisive fact of our salvation, the decisive fact of our blessings is not resting on how good our faith is or how strong our faith is. It rests on the strength of the one in whom we put our faith. Australian pastor Rory Shiner has given a wonderful example of this. He compares our union with Christ to flying on an airplane. He says, if you want to get from point A to point B, what relationship do you need to have with the airplane? You don't need to be inspired by the airplane. You don't need to try to follow the airplane. You need to be in the airplane. And so our act of faith is to get on the airplane and trust that that plane is what will get us from point A to point B. But he says, imagine two passengers. One passenger flies all the time. She's been on big planes and little planes, turbulent flights and smooth flights, and she hops on that plane without a care in the world, trusting with utter confidence that that plane will get her to his destination. But perhaps there's another passenger. He's never flown on an airplane before. He trusts that that plane will get him to his destination, so he gets on. But he's nervous. He's anxious. He has moments of doubt. The stewardess comes out to to describe how to put the oxygen mask on in case the, the cabin loses pressure, and he's taking notes to make sure he'll know how to do it. The plane hits some turbulence, and he presses the call button and asks the steward, are you sure the plane is okay? The plane banks to turn, and he's sure for a moment that they're all going to die. Which of those passengers will arrive at their destination? The answer is both of them. Because the point is not how confident each one is. The point was, what did they have their faith in? And if they put their faith in Christ, their moments of anxiety and, and, and doubt did not keep them from making it to the destination. And Shiner says it's the same when it comes to Christ, that if our faith is in Him, if we put our faith in Him and are, put, and are now united to Him, then we will have moments of doubt or anxiety, perhaps. But that is not the key. The key is Christ. And when we understand that our salvation is found in Him and because of Him, not because of our faith in the abstract or how strong or consistent our faith is, then those of us who struggle with doubt or anxiety, with moments of despair and darkness, who see our sin and our weakness can take heart because our hope is not in ourself. Our hope is in Christ. And so the call is to fix our eyes on Him, who in our relationship with Him becomes our source and the means by which God gives us every spiritual blessing in Christ. This is our union with Him. That's so encouraging. But next, Paul takes us on a brief tour of the blessings that we have in Christ. And this is one I want to look at next with you. Let's see what these blessings are. In verse 4, we find that in Christ... We were chosen by God to be holy and blameless before Him. In other words, holiness, purity from sin, is a blessing that is given to us in Christ. You know, as humans, we are born in Adam. The relationship we have at birth is that we are connected to Adam. And with sin ruling in our flesh, all of our thoughts and desires and actions are oriented towards ourselves. But as Paul says in Romans 6, when we put our faith in Christ and God gives us spiritual blessings in Christ, then if we are in Christ, just as Christ died, our sinful flesh has died. And just as Christ was raised to new life, we have been given new life. We are new creations filled with His Spirit, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. And while the habits and instincts of our sinful flesh continue to pull on us, God is slowly and steadily enabling us more and more to live according to our new nature. A process that will be completed fully and finally when we stand before him after death or on that final day. And we will see the fullness of that blessing that God has given us in Christ. We, of course, call this process sanctification. That we continually grow more and more in the holiness that God has given us in Christ. And we have this promise in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began the good work in you will complete it on the day of Christ. And I think it's so helpful for us to notice that holiness is one of the blessings given to us in Christ. Holiness, in other words, is not something we have to accomplish in order to get the blessings from Christ. But nor is holiness one of those optional extra packages that Christians can sort of decide to take or leave. No, holiness is one of the blessings we get in Christ. And so Christ calls us to strive for it with all our strength, knowing that he is giving it to us and working it in us if our faith is in Christ. Holiness is one of the blessings we get in Christ. Verse 5, we see a second blessing. We are adopted by God the Father as his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. When we are joined to Jesus by faith, we become part of his family. Since God is his father, God becomes our father. Since Jesus is welcomed into his presence and given an open invitation to come to him in the security of his father's love, we too are welcomed into his presence and given an open invitation to come into our heavenly father's presence in the security of his love. I was thinking about it this week and thinking, you know, if a, if a random child came up to you and demanded your attention constantly and asked you to feed him every meal, every day, and then just said, can I move in with you? That would probably be a little awkward, maybe even rude. But if that family were to adopt that child, not only are those questions not rude, they are his right to look to his family for food and housing and provision. And so it is in our adoption in Christ, think of what an imposition, an utter, utter, utter Rudeness for us to think that we could just waltz into the presence of the God of the universe as sinful and weak humans. And yet, in Christ, when we are adopted as sons and daughters, not only is it not an imposition, we are welcomed. As it, are, it is our right to come before the Father through Jesus Christ. And we should think about this every time we pray. Every time we pray, I love to think about the fact that this should never be taken for granted. We are, in prayer, after all, presuming to come into the presence of the King of the universe. This should astound us that we are welcomed to do this. That in Christ, we have access to the throne of grace. Amen. That Jesus, because He has died and risen again and united us to Himself, gives us access to the Father to come and bring Him our worries and our anxieties and our fears and our concerns. That we can talk to Him. God as our father. A blessing of adoption. Well, then we continue down to verse 7, and we find another blessing. In Christ, in verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. When we talk about redemption, we are coming close to the heart of the gospel. Not because redemption is better than the other benefits or has a certain priority necessarily over the other benefits, but because in redemption, redemption brings us to the cross. And the centerpiece of Jesus' work, where we find Jesus giving his own life to redeem us. You know, redemption refers to paying a necessary price to buy one's freedom. In the ancient world, someone could have gone and, and, and redeemed a slave by paying the price for their freedom. Well, for us, the wages of sin, the debt, the cost to redeem us from death, the, sorry, the, the wages of sin is death, and the debt we are under is death itself. And so Jesus went to the cross to pay that debt, and to redeem us from death, and forgive us our sins, and restore us to relationship with God. And Paul says that this great redemption, that we would be forgiven of our sins, and welcomed into God's presence, this is a blessing that is found in Christ. And so the central question for each one of us is, do you know Jesus as your Redeemer? Do you know that Jesus in history came and paid the tremendous price of His own blood to redeem us from death and to offer us forgiveness of sins along with every other spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Him? That is offered to you if you will repent and turn to Him and put your trust in Him as your Savior. But as great as these blessings are, that's not the end of them. In verse 11, Paul indicates that there's even more. He says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. And we see more of the details of this inheritance in chapter 2. So we'll be coming back to this in a couple of weeks. But we can say this for certain. If we are made sons and daughters of God along with Jesus, if we are Jesus' brothers and sisters, you know how an inheritance works, right? Right? siblings share the inheritance. And the profound truth that Paul tells us in Romans 8 is that when we are united to Christ, we become co-heirs with Him, to share in His inheritance. If we are in Jesus, then the inheritance that the Father has promised to Jesus, eternal life in His presence, reigning with Him in joy, becomes ours to share, even as Christ, of course, maintains his unique and exalted status as the Son of God. Certainly seems too much for any human to dare to hope that we, knowing our weakness and our frailty and our sinfulness, could be offered an eternal kingdom as an inheritance. And yet that is offered to us through faith in Christ. So here we have what Paul has shown us. He showed us that the source of every blessing is our union with Christ. If we would have spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, we must come through faith in Christ. They're found in union with him. Then he's described these blessings. But Before we end, I want us to see briefly the security of these blessings that we have in Christ. Can we really be confident that we will receive all of these blessings in Christ? And here we return again to the sovereignty of our God that is written all through this sentence because if god from all eternity had chosen us in christ to be adopted and redeemed then it only makes sense for us to say that jesus death and resurrection were not merely an act to make salvation possible in the hopes that perhaps someone might come and accept it but rather that jesus death and resurrection were an act that definitively secured the salvation for all those that God has determined to save. In our Reformed tradition, we often call this doctrine definite atonement. And it says that Christ's death and resurrection are sufficient to cover the sins of the entire world, but His death and resurrection was done to actually accomplish the salvation of those that God had given to Him. Jesus says exactly this in John chapter 6, verse 38. He says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. What was Jesus' goal in coming down from heaven? It was to save those that the Father from all eternity had given to the Son. That was his goal, and he accomplished it on the cross. And he will not fail. I think that's why Jesus on the night before he went to the cross prayed in John 17. I am not praying for the world, he says, but for those that you have given me. For they are yours. And this is our confidence and our security. That Jesus, the son of God, says the whole reason he came down from heaven was to secure our salvation. So that he would lose nothing of all that the father had given him. For all who put their faith in Christ and persevere in faith in Him as our Savior, though we know our weakness, we can have great confidence and security in this astounding promise that in Christ God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has given us this inheritance according to the counsel of His will, and it never fails. I would add briefly, maybe as an encouragement or application, that it's precisely the fact that Christ's death and resurrection has not just made salvation possible, but has actually secured it for those that God has given him that motivates us in evangelism and missions. Because who in their right mind would go waltz into, say, Iran and, and expect that those committed to Islam who hate the West and Christianity, who would expect them to turn to Christ in salvation? Who would expect many in a a world like ours that is hostile to Christianity, who seem so uninterested in the gospel, who would expect them to turn to Christ? Only those who know that God has a people and that Jesus has died to secure their salvation so that our evangelism and missions are not a fool's errand, but a guarantee that there are those whom Christ has died to save and will respond to the gospel. And so once again God's gracious sovereignty is our security and our hope and salvation and our encouragement to go and preach the gospel. As we conclude this morning, I want to leave you with one final thought. That is to consider what a savior we have who's described in these verses. Jesus is the glorious source of every treasure the one in whom is found every spiritual blessing the God of the universe has at his disposal. We know what life in this world is like as we continue to experience the brokenness and wickedness that's here in creation and will be here until it ends. But offered to us in Jesus is every spiritual blessing. Jesus has committed his life going to the point of death on the cross to secure this inheritance for us. He is such a great Savior. he is worth everything in his book the insanity of God Nick Ripkin tells of traveling to a Muslim country where he had the chance to interview a man who had been an elite terrorist killing hundreds in the name of Allah but this man through dreams had been led to find the Bible and in the Bible he found Christ and put his faith in him And this man now risked his life to bring Bibles and the Jesus film into this Muslim country. He had agreed to this interview on the condition of total anonymity and he sat behind a large potted plant so that Nick would not even be able to see the features of his face. After a number of hours hearing his story, Nick asked this man, he said, you've told me your story, but you've also told me that you're married, that you have a wife and sons, and that you have led your wife and your children to Christ. And what I'm wondering is this. How do they help you in your ministry? What is happening with your family? Unexpectedly, this man who wanted total anonymity leapt out of his corner and grabbed Nick's shoulders and demanded, I have been willing to die for Jesus, but when I go to bed at night, the thing that terrifies me is the thought that God might ask my wife and my sons to give their lives for him. How can God ask that? Tell me. And Nick, who had already lost his own son, who had died on the mission field, paused and said, I personally cannot answer your question. But let me ask you this question in return. Is Jesus worth it? Is he, li- is he worth your life? Is he worth the lives of your sons and wife? The man began to cry, but stepped back, nodded, and declared, Jesus is worth it. He died in order to bring me salvation. How can all of us not be willing to die for his name? He is worth my life, and he is worth the lives of my family. And with that, he turned and walked out of the room. And that's the question for each of us. Is Jesus worth it? Do you hear what God is declaring in Ephesians 1? That Jesus has secured eternal redemption, adoption as sons and daughters of God, holiness and blameless to stand in his presence, and an eternal inheritance for us. And he has secured it at the cost of his own life by shedding his blood for us to rescue us from this world and its pain and its suffering and our sin and offer us these eternal blessings. He is so worth it. And so may we be willing to give up our ease and abundance. May we be willing to give up our life of sin or our demands. May we be willing to give up anything for such a wonderful Savior. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give our hearts an understanding of what Jesus has done for us. As we read these verses, would we be awed by what our Savior has done and what He has secured for us? I pray that we would leave here knowing Christ and trusting Him, being united to Him by your Spirit, and willing to give up anything and everything for the sake of your name and the glory of your name that others might know your name. We pray that you would work this in our hearts and in our church as a congregation. May you do this for your glory. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m., To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.